When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You said you didn't believe in white supremacy because you didn't believe in black inferiority. I don't know who the grand dragon or the grand wizard of the KKK is. I don't know who he is. The, the highest guy. I love him. There's something greater in me. The love of God in me is greater than the hatred in him. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Phil, but you probably guessed that since you're on Fill in the Blanks. Today, we're talking about victimhood culture, a concept that originates in sociology today defined as a tendency of people to overemphasize the need to protect their sexual, gender, or ethnic identity and to present themselves as victims, even if the alleged offense was minor or nobody even noticed it except them. Maybe it was just all in their mind. I am very excited that my guest today is Pastor James Ward. He says that the core conviction to overcome is the first step to shifting from victim to zero victim thinking. So we're going to talk about Pastor James' book, Zero Victim, Overcoming Injustice with a New Attitude, and Ways We Can Get Out of Victimhood. And when I say get out of victimhood, it really is an escape because this can be a prison that we get caught in in our lives. It can be a way of looking at things. It can be a lifestyle. It can be an attitude of approach to how we live our lives. And trust me, you have an attitude of approach. Everybody has an attitude of approach. Think about it. Some people come into a room like a house of fire. Some people come into a room like a cool breeze. Everybody has an attitude of the way they approach things, and it can really trap you into being a certain way. I think Pastor James has really identified something that I think can be outcome determinative in a person's life. He has written a book that is absolutely compelling, and I want to mention it again before I even let him say the first word. It is Zero Victim, Overcoming Injustice with a New Attitude. So, Pastor James Ward, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Doctor, for having me. It's great to be with you again, and uh, really, really an honor to be with you. Thanks for the great work you're doing. Well, I had you on the show not too terribly long ago, and I said to Laferne when I walked off there, I said, I am so frustrated because we had other people there. And I said, I need time to do a deep dive with this man. He has so much to say that needs to be heard. So I immediately wanted to sit down with you on the podcast. And I also want to have you back on the show. I want to have you talking to some young people as well, because your book couldn't be more timely. Congratulations on an excellent book, by the Thank way. You. Thank and you so much. let me tell everybody that's 
listening and not watching, we also have your lovely wife, Sharon's with you today. So Sharon, welcome. Thanks for enduring the two of us. <laughs> A lot of shiny heads over here. But what caused you to write this particular book, Pastor? Well, it's, it's really um, something that sprang from my own life. You know, just the backstory. I grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, in the, in the South. And um, doctor, there was just an understanding, a uh, nonverbal understanding that uh, black people and white people didn't get along. Um, that was the culture there. And that was further uh, clarified by the fact geographically that Tuscaloosa, my hometown, is divided by the Black Warrior River. And it was like the white folks were on the north side <laughs> of the town and the black people were on the south side. And you just didn't cross the river. Um, I remember going into third grade um, at the tail end of integration when uh, we got the news that we were going to be bused to the white side of town. I really don't recall um, in my mind seeing a white student, um, a few teachers at our black school uh, were white, but I really don't recall seeing a white student until I was bused to the north side uh, to go to school. On the way to the north side, uh, you cross the river, there's a geography change. I noticed that the homes were uh, very well, uh, the lawns were very well manicured, the hedges were trimmed, um, the streets were clean, just a different world. And something on the inside of me initially said, I, I belong on this, on this side of town. You know, it's like your outsides. <laughs> you know, I'm liking are, this. <laughs> yeah, your outsides are catching up with, with your insides, you know, which uh, has a lot to do even with victim, victim thinking being perpetuated, just environment. But once we get to the new school, the chalkboards are nice and clean. The, 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 the building is well lit, fresh paint. All the playground equipment worked. But on the inside, I was saying, you know what, there's going to be some racial problems because black kids and white kids aren't supposed to interact. I had a great teacher who was, um, happened to be a friend of my grandmother's, uh, a Southern, Southern uh, AME pastor. She was the wife of, of a Southern pastor. And she happened to be my third grade teacher, but she was um, the most refined, uh, stately black woman I'd ever met. And she would do something that was revolutionary. She would put our names on the board whenever we did well in class, not for punitive reasons, but whenever we did well, she would put our names up. I noticed that my name was on the board quite often and something was happening on the inside of me. And, and really by Providence in third grade, I, it hit me that the white kids around me weren't against me and they weren't keeping me from doing well in school. And from that point, the seed was planted in my mind that I didn't believe in white supremacy because I didn't believe in black inferiority. I understood in third grade that um, intrinsic worth, uh, knowing my identity, knowing what I was capable of, um, I could not be robbed of that because of the perceptions of the people that were around me. Now that was the seed and that really began to kind of shape my life and I experienced what I call zero victim relationships all throughout my life, healthy quality relationships with people of all ethnicities. And, um, you know, a few years later, many years later, as a matter of fact, I was working at a, at a church in the South suburbs, which is a church I pastor now. And we took um, uh, an attitudinal assessment. And in that attitudinal assessment, one of the categories, it graded the degree to which you saw yourself as a victim. My score comes back as zero. And uh, eventually the guy who facilitated the, uh, the, the assessment said, you know, I need to talk. I've never seen anybody score zero in the area of victim thinking. Where did that come from? How, how did you approach 
uh, life? You know, what is your thinking? And I explained to him what happened to me in third grade when I was really liberated and freed from understanding and believing that the people around me could marginalize my life. Now, that's not to say that we don't have a number of challenges in our society and broken systems. Of course we do. Broken, broken people create broken systems, but not being a victim of the system and knowing that um, the things that are in me, what God has placed in me, who I am, those are much, much more powerful forces than the opposition that comes against me. And I think that's the, the premise of zero victim mindset. Imagine what people could do in life if they did not believe that they were victims. Of course, things happen, but you know. Well, of course. And let me ask you about that. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. You said you didn't believe in white supremacy because you didn't believe in black inferiority. Yep. Do you think you have to have one in order to have the other? Do you think that the black man, the black woman, the black child has to be instilled with a feeling of inferiority for white supremacy to reign? You have you have to buy in at some point. And, I, and I'm not saying that there are not legitimate instances of um, folks that you interact with that communicate that or sometimes you're in a situation where there are inequities in terms of power and privilege and those kinds of things. Absolutely. But you have to participate. At some point, you've got to believe it and embrace it for it to be operative in your life. I would tell our church for years, I don't know who the grand dragon or the grand wizard of the KKK is. I don't know who he is. The, the highest guy. I love him. Now, he has problems. He has a number of different things that he needs to work out in his life. But as far as James Ward, I love him. I care about him. I have empathy because of the problematic thoughts and sentiments that he has. There's something greater in me. The love of God in me is greater than the hatred in him. I would never allow him to be in power over me for his hatred for me to undermine my love for him. That's the power of zero victim thinking. Now, that's not to say that we give him a pass or justify anything that he does in his actions, but there's something in me that is greater than the hatred that's in him. If, if we could ever get that message, I think it's revolutionary and it's a game changer to the things we're dealing with in life. Well, that's why I think your book is so well written and so timely. I'm a great student of Thomas Sowell, mm -hmm. who is part of the Hoover Project at Stanford University, and he talks about a lot of systemic racism, and he says some of what you're saying in that you have to buy into it. He's not saying that it's not built into right. society, but that you have to be willing to bend to it in order for it to have agency in your life. And what you're saying is you've never bought into the fact that you were inferior in some way. They may condescend to you. They may try to close a door to you. They may try and hold you back, but it's up to you to accept or reject that. 
That's that's correct. I mean, doctor, when you when you know your identity, you cannot possibly convinced be convinced that you are something or someone other than who you know you are. If you tried to convince me that I'm an automobile right now, I would think that you're insane. <laughs> not not me. And so when I when I have a grasp of my identity, knowing that I've been made in the image of God, every human's been made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, when I understand that. You rob or disempower other people in terms of their right and their capacity to define or to redefine. Whenever you give the power to define, you've given away identity. You've given away your soul. You've given away your future, um, your perceptions, your mind, your emotions. Everything has been sold when you give the power to define. And I think that individuals, we've gotten away from um, really understanding identity I think that that there's no freedom from victim thinking without faith. I think faith has a tremendous role, an essential role in understanding it. But it really comes back to the to the the identity of who an individual is and not feeling that you've been defined by situations or circumstances. Victimization happens in life. It's a it's an event that happens in life. But victim thinking has to do with the residual effect of that victimization that it's inevitable and it's, it's an elongated period of time that you are living in the aftermath of a, of, a, of a traumatic event that happened in your life. We can't control victimizations. It's part of life. The world is a hostile world. But how we respond to those things is our responsibility. You don't deny the fact that you and Sharon might go to buy a house and they might turn you away because of your skin color. Or you might go to sell a house and get 20% less for it because you are a black couple. They say, well, we're going to appraise this for 20 or 25% less, which we know exists because of redlining yeah, correct. in the real estate industry. I've read three or four articles on that just this week for a show we're doing to out that as still happening. So you're saying, yeah, that can happen. Yep. We can be victimized by that. But if we then walk away from that and allow it to color the filter through which we see the world from that point yep. on, yep. that's our choice. That's correct. Yeah, That's where victimhood comes in, that we begin to see things through a victim lens and begin to take on the role of victimhood. Yeah. Because after that incident, who really loses is not the victimizer, it's the victim. And the, the, the intensity that I have for communicating the zero victim message is because victimization happens. And so it's not a denial at all. You know, folks have kind of misunderstood my premise in some cases and say, you know, well, you just kind of acknowledge that you don't want to acknowledge that things happen and there's racism and there's systemic. no. I acknowledge that they exist, which is exactly why we need to get prepared mentally, spiritually, and emotionally to deal with those things. I, as a pastor, I, I've often said that I've discovered that the people who do well in life are the people who learn to manage their challenges well, because the challenges are inevitable. Pitfalls of victimization, they're inevitable. inevitable. I've, I say that we have a sin problem. It's not a skin problem. So there's an infection in the human heart that makes people discriminate and treat each other the way that we do. And it has little to do with skin color. I can, from a biblical standpoint, let's go back to Genesis four. 
when Cain killed his own brother Abel. Same mother, same ethnicity, same race. And you see an expression, an expression of sin and wickedness in his heart. So I say it's a sin problem, not a skin problem. When we're empowered to, to deal with the problems and the injustice and the inequities that we're dealing with in life, it gives us opportunity to be, be victorious over those. So let's go back to that incident when you use in terms of the home. The victimizer, sure, there's discrimination. Something, some kind of injustice has been committed against me because I was not able to purchase a home at that time or the price change. But I'm not going to perpetually allow my children and my grandchildren to suffer at the hands of some victimizer. I will not give them that kind of power and that kind of authority to, to control my destiny in life. Am I, am I giving any justification to the fact that it happened? Absolutely not. It should be dealt with but I'm going to deny the opportunity to control my life. That's the power of zero victim thinking. Well, I didn't read you in the book as being a denier at all, being naive at all, seeing the world through rose-colored glasses at all, or asking your reader to do the same. In fact, I read you as saying, this is real, this happens, so you better get ready for it and check your mind. In fact, you say in the book that people with a victimhood mentality are undisciplined thinkers, yeah. I think is how yeah. you referred to it, is undisciplined yeah. thinkers. You're not checking your thinking. You're letting somebody else control your thinking. You're not being disciplined in your yeah. thinking. Yeah, undisciplined emotionally. Right. I talk about that as well, yeah. which I think is a, is a conversation that's not happening and I just want to be clear, we're not being condescending to people at all. But I think that that un, people who are undisciplined emotionally are all over the nation right now. I think that this is the problem. I don't think that, that uh, times are getting harder. I think people are getting weaker in some, some situations. I, I think that we're, we're not conditioning and tempering our hearts and our minds to deal with the things that we're, we're facing off with. Victim mentality right now, it's, it's like being in a maximum security prison with no walls. And now all of a sudden we're creating safe spaces and all these kinds of things for people to retreat to because we're not building better people. We're not, we're not tempering our emotional thresholds, you know, in the, in the workforce. I mean, we'll check a resume. Where'd you go to school? How did you score on the LSAT, the GMAT, the GRE? But we're not checking emotionally are people tempered and strong from an emotional standpoint. And so I just think it's a, it's a, it's a quotient that's not being addressed. We're silent on the issue um, in society. And we're seeing victim thinking is now becoming the soil from which all of the division, all of the political vitriol, all of the hatred, all of the, uh, the, the exasperated um, uh, racism and the conflagration of emotions in our nation is all growing from the soil the very fertile soil of victim thinking. And not just in the area of race. I, I deal with, with women who have been molested, who've gone through situations where they've been abused. Um, we deal with folks who are dealing with divorce and gone through bankruptcy. In any situation, victim thinking, it becomes like a, like a maximum security prison, prison with no walls. And my heart is to see people free, to see people liberate, liberated, to live in the dignity, to live out the fullness of God's call for their life. And it has everything to do with their, their perspective and how they manage um, the, the emotions. I, I say that, that emotions now have become, uh, I use the term emotional uh, EWMDs, emotional weapons of mass destruction. 
And I think we're seeing that on a cataclysmic uh, scale in our nation right now. Well, I think you're right about what you're saying. One of the things that really jumped out at me that you said was, if we want to see a better nation, we must start by creating better, stronger people who do not see themselves as victims. And I worry right now when I see what's happening in schools, both K through 12 and in universities, that we are coddling, that we're not preparing students for the real world because we're, like you said, it's like the prison without walls. We've got students now at some of the top universities in the country, an election result comes back that they don't like, and they're creating safe spaces for them to decompress. We have some universities that have brought in puppies for them to hold so they can not be so anxious. And we have students that are getting tenured professors, disciplined, suspended, and fired because they're offended by some of their ideology. I thought we went to the university to hear other people's yeah, point of view. That's correct to steel ourselves against things we didn't believe or to be influenced by something we hadn't considered before. Now, I've seen studies anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of students think it's okay to yell down a speaker that disagrees with you. And students complaining if they're asked to take the other side of an argument on a final exam the side they don't agree with, and argue that side to show that they've studied both sides of something. They go to the dean and complain, and the professor winds up getting disciplined or suspended or dismissed. We're not preparing strong people, because when you get out into the dog-eat-dog world where there's a lot of dogs after them bones, you better be tough and ready to go and not whining and being a victim where... You say you've been damaged. You say you've yeah. been hurt. Yeah, that's correct. And I and I think we're we're, I mean, actually, it's ironic. You mentioned the university campus. We're being unintelligent in terms of how we deal with challenges and victimization in life. I mean, a, a simple premise, and I look at it three ways. There are the the facts of victimization. There are the feelings of victimization, and there are the philosophies of victimization. So very, very briefly, the facts of victimization means that you analyze the situations and circumstances that you're dealing with intelligently. But then you also have to ask the question, if, if I'm being victimized, if I'm experiencing this, uh, this, this victimization in my own life, was it, was it some of me and was it some of my victimizer? Was it mostly them or a little bit of me or a little bit of me and some of them? When you talk about the facts of victimization, in most situations, when you analyze what actually transpired, it's not, it's not as bad as it's augmented. It's not as bad as what you, how you feel it to be. So number one, we have to talk about the facts of victimization and be honest about those and be truthful. John 8, 32, from a biblical standpoint, Jesus said you should know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We got to start with the truth and the facts of victimization. Number two, there are feelings of victimization. Now you're talking about my emotional response which is absolutely subjective, and that can go anywhere in any number of, of different directions. 
I think we're we're encouraging the feelings of victimization. We're not putting any premium on the facts of victimization. And then thirdly, that leads to philosophies of victimization that now is being taught, is being marketed, is being politicized, is being weaponized. And you're now seeing a growing movement that that is being pushed in terms of the victim narrative. I think that that many politicians have recognized that the greatest political capital in our nation right now is victim thinking. That if you can if you can politicize and weaponize it and make a group of people believe that the other party made you a victim and my party is going to save you from victimhood, it creates a codependency that that people will vote and you'll win landsliding elections all day. Now, I'm not speaking to any political group. I'm just telling you the power of politicizing, weaponizing victimization is happening in our society. The facts of victimization, the feelings of victimization, and the philosophies of victimization. And the university campus is exactly where we should be addressing these issues, as well as churches. I think that pastors like myself have a tremendous role to play in how we deal with this. Well, I think you're exactly right about victimizing. I read an article today from the Wall Street Journal about an analyst saying that that's how Trump got elected, that he came along and addressed a lot of white men who had lost a lot of opportunities over the last 20 or 30 years, that in 1965, there was one woman, I believe it was, in the Harvard Medical School graduating class. It was either one woman or one black. Fast forward like 40 years, and there were like 47, which means there were 47 less white men in that group. So he addressed all of these sort of things that nobody had been saying. And here are all of these guys that are supposedly the ones with a man's world privilege, white privilege, male privilege, who couldn't feel like they were able to whine or complain. And here comes somebody that's whining and complaining for them, and they all jumped on that bandwagon because they wanted to be victims but didn't feel like they could complain. And he gave them the opportunity to weaponize that victimization, and they jumped on the bandwagon. I'm talking to Pastor James Ward, and if you've just started paying attention or listening, he is the author of Zero Victim, Overcoming Injustice with a New Attitude. And the attitude is own your course through this life. Own your feelings, own your thinking, own your choices, that you don't have to step into the victim role. You can reject that. Let me say very clearly, he is not denying that there is systemic racism. He is not denying that there are people out there that will victimize you. He is not denying that there are circumstances or situations that will prey upon you and that you don't have a choice about that. What he's saying is you have a complete choice about what you do about it, what you say to yourself about it, whether you put it on and wear it like a coat or whether you throw it off and say, I'm going to choose how I react to this. Fair statement? Very, very fair. Accurate. Um, Zero victim thinking is preventative. 
Um, it's preemptive. Um, I, I use an analogy to describe how how victim thinking works, and I use the analogy of baseball. And I like to say that the pitcher is a is a really really bad guy because he throws this object that's rock hard at 100 miles an hour at this other guy behind home plate. Um, that's, that's not a nice thing to do. And let's just say that the, the catcher now on the receiving end of this, this projectile, this life-threatening projectile that's coming his way, if he is unprotected, unaware, and unprepared, he could easily lose his life with a baseball being thrown at him at 100 miles an hour. But because he prepares, because he preconditions his mind, he takes the proper stance, he puts on the right protective equipment, he stretches out his hand in anticipation of the pitch that's coming his way. And what was potentially a life-threatening situation has now become America's favorite pastime. It's a sport to him. Why? Because he manages the problem that is coming. That is how I describe the, the necessity of, of preconditioning your mind to develop a, a zero-victim mindset, the pitches are going to come. The victimization is going to come through relationships, through the work experience. This is something universal. The only qualification you need to be victimized is to be born. It happens to people all over. I talk to a number of folks who are immigrants from other country, countries who are saying, you don't understand victimization in America when you haven't had a tyrannical government and a dictator. And, and so there's just... It's part of life. The world's a hostile place. But again, the way that we prepare and precondition our minds to deal with those things determine whether or not they have effect on us at all. And that is my that is my encouragement. You mentioned you mentioned the the power of attitude and why I I acknowledge um the the internal discipline, the emotional discipline that's needed. I use another analogy. You know, I I I love college football. I love Alabama football. You know what? It makes me happy when my team wins. You know what? But if my team loses, I'm unhappy about it, but it doesn't rob me of my joy. My joy is is separate and independent from whether or not my team wins or loses. So I'm happy if my team wins and I'm joyful, but if my team loses, I'm unhappy, but that doesn't mean I, I'm, I'm unjoyful. What's the difference? Happiness is a is a result based upon external circumstances, but joy is an internal, unchangeable reality. The same thing is true with freedom. The same thing is true with zero victim thinking. We got to build better people and equip people. I think this should be taught in the school systems. I think it should be taught in churches that we've got to help folks be equipped to face off with the challenges that we're that we're all facing, and uh, really, really begin to kind of put this in the right the right framework. Yeah, you said something that I thought was really, really interesting. And I hope people hear this in an action-oriented way. You said everything we know is something we learned. Let's think about that for a minute because that's a simple statement, but it's really profound. Anything that's been learned can be unlearned. Correct. And anything that we've learned, we can relearn, we can add to it, we can change it. And if somebody has a victim mentality, they have a way of going through life with a chip on their shoulder, they have a way of being pessimistic or paranoid or 
negative in any way. They've learned that. It's been reinforced in them in some way. Maybe it was their parents. Maybe it was the people they hung out with. Maybe it was just what they said to themselves about things that happened in their life. But it's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to get you to a place in your life where you can feel safe and at peace and have joy like you're talking about. For example, I always say when you see people that are angry, that's just an outward manifestation of hurt, fear, and frustration. And if you look past the anger, you'll see that this person is hurt. It's like a cornered animal. It's like they're afraid. And what I want people to hear you saying, what I want young men to hear you saying is, okay, wait a minute. I I can continue to do what I'm doing, but play this movie out till the end. What if I continue to have a chip on my shoulder? What if I continue to play the victim? What if I continue to feel put upon and be the angry young black man? Okay. Where's that headed? Where's that going to get you? As opposed to saying, wait a minute, I'm smart. I'm able-bodied. I'm capable. I can choose my own course here. Those are two different paths that have two different destinations. And the destination you're advocating is to star in your own life, to write your own script and get where you want to go instead of where somebody's setting you up to be. That's correct. Yeah. But they don't teach that in schools. We barely teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, let alone how to deal with the challenges of life, the disappointments, the conflicts, the frustrations. We don't really teach that at any level in school, which I advocate for, but they don't seem to do it much. Yeah, yeah. You know, God created us to live life from the inside out, not from the outside in. If if any person is subject to living life from the outside in based upon external circumstances, your life will be a constant yo-yo and you will never have peace. You'll never have peace of mind. You'll never experience emotional peace when you live in response to the external stimuli. I've, I've studied um, Viktor Frankl a little bit, an Austrian Holocaust survivor. And um, he makes a statement that between every stimulus and every response, there's a space. And I've, I've embraced that idea and taken it a little further in the zero victim um, message and saying that life is filled with stimulus in every situation. But here's the thing, here's the idea, a victim thinker will react by reflex. A zero victim thinker will respond by reason. So in other words, there's always a stimulus, there's always a trigger, there's always an injustice or something that happened that took, that took place. There's, there will always be victimizations in life. It's part of life. But a victim thinker will react by reflex. And before you know it, you just reacted a certain way emotionally. I say that it's important for us to act intelligently and not react emotionally in any situation. But a zero victim thinker, instead of reacting by reflex, a zero victim thinker will respond, will respond by reason. There's a big difference between reacting and responding to things that happen to us in life. And here's the fallout. Victimization in our life, when we talk about it being learned and it's something that it's 
uh, acquired over time. You know what I mean? A victim thinker sees himself as a negative uh, recipient. It's a conditioned mindset that you see yourself as a negative recipient of the thoughts, words, or actions of people or circumstances. And here's the problem with it. Victim thinking works like a set of lenses that once you put those lenses on, you will literally read victimization into everything that happens to you in life. I talk with young women that maybe, maybe a dating situation went bad a few times. And you know what? Every potential new guy that comes along has to deal with all of the trauma and all the issues of the bad guys. And you know what? Who suffers? You, you remain single all of your life because you will read victimization into conversations. What he did do, he didn't compliment me. He didn't do all these kinds of things. And you will literally begin to read victimization into your life, which defines the trajectory of your life for the remainder of your life. And it works multi-generationally. The cycle has to be broken. And so my encouragement to people is to, is to get free so that you can also set up the folks that come after you to walk in that same freedom. Be the Moses in your life. Be the Moses in your family to come out of Egypt and to uh, set a new trajectory to get to to the place that God has for you. You bring up such a good point. It takes creating some space. Viktor Frankl, his book *Man's Search for Meaning* is an introduction to logotherapy. is the best half book I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> Not a big fan of logotherapy, but the other half of that book, uh, *Man's Search for Meaning*, is one of the most profound. I've probably given away two, three hundred copies. Mm of the book. But he talks about that creating that space because he said that they took away everything in that concentration camp so they can control whether I sit, stand, eat, starve, live, die, but they can't control the attitude I take about it. That's it. Yeah. That's the one thing they can't control is the attitude I take about it. That's what you're saying is if you create some space and not just knee-jerk react to this. And in that space, you can respond instead of react. I had a mother and her two sons on some time ago, some young black teenagers and good-looking kids. And they were talking about that they had been out in the evening. It wasn't particularly late, but they were at a fast food restaurant a couple of cops came in and started hassling them. And as it turned out, as this was looked into and verified, clearly for no reason, they were just guilty of being hungry while black. <laughs> and so they were at not to drive through, but inside getting some food. And they were real angry when they were here. And said, what should we do? And the advice I gave them was, you should do exactly what those cops tell you. They have badges, and you have to defer to the badge. They have guns. They have agency. They have authority. And your job, you have one job, and that's to get home to your mother alive tonight. And that encounter in that fast food restaurant is the most dangerous five minutes of your life. Your job is to get home alive to your mother. You've got to pick your battles. 
you've got to pick your battle fields. You've got to pick your battle times. Right. And your job is to get home alive. Now, you can get up the next morning. You can go down to the precinct. You can file a complaint. You can get those security tapes. You can do whatever you want. And trust me, those police departments pay out millions of dollars a year for misconduct. Yeah. You pick your battles. You pick your battle times, your battle fields. But you get home alive. That's what you needed to do. And they did barely in that situation. And that's what you're talking about. Make a response, yeah. not a yeah. reaction. Yeah. They were right. They didn't need to be right fighters. They needed to get home alive to yeah. their mother. And their mother just burst into tears saying, oh, my God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> right, for telling right, that to my boys. Right. They had a choice. Yeah. That's, that's a real scenario. And, and doctor, I've been in that position myself. I'll give, I'll give you a story that Please. affirms everything that you're saying. You know, we, we moved recently, but before we lived in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, pretty, pretty nice area. And, um, Somewhat, somewhat isolated, and only the folks that live in that in that community, who are you know folks who have done well in life, we're the only folks that go in that area. Well, every year we have this turkey trot, so there's a a run, a 5K run through our neighborhood. Everybody in the neighborhood knows that the streets are going to be blocked off, and the runners are going to be there. So I wake up on a Saturday morning, go to the health club, go to my workout, coming back, the the turkey trot is happening. There are checkpoints with police officers to get back to my house. I kid you not, the first checkpoint I come to was a, a police officer of Asian descent. Sir, do you live in this neighborhood? Yes, I do. Okay, stay on the left side of the road. Watch out for the runners. Be safe. Thank you so much, sir. I get to the next checkpoint. It's a black police officer. I could, I'm not kidding you. He was a black police officer. You live in this neighborhood, sir? I do. Be safe. Watch out for the, the runners. Have a great day. I get to the third checkpoint. Now, I've already been through two. So this guy should be a breeze. I get to the third checkpoint. It's a white police officer. He has a he has an angry look on his face as he sees me approaches. Now I'm watching other cars before me go on around the block. I get to him thinking this is going to be a piece, piece of cake. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? He's looking at me with disdain on his face. Do you live in this neighborhood? I say, yes, I do. Um, what street do you live on? I name my street. How far down is that street? I had to describe to him where my where my street was now this time i'm the the you talk about the victimization you know <laughs> oil is rising the temperature gauge is going up and then he, he says let me see your driver's license now i've been through two checkpoints <laughs> I've, I've described to you accurately where i live let me see your driver's license he sees my driver's license looks at him to prove that i live there he kind of throws them back to me and says watch out for the runners now at this point i'm saying clearly this man has a problem with me being a black guy living in this kind of neighborhood, to your point. But a zero victim mindset in me over, was there to override the emotional reaction that I could have had. That was right around the time I think Laquan McDonald had been shot in the city of Chicago. So, I mean, this is, Chicago is kind of a powder keg, but it's that space that I was able to operate in to respond with reason and not react by reflex because you said the guy, he has a badge and a gun, and the, and the state has given him the authority to use it. If I respond, if I react a certain way, that's a dangerous situation. So it, it happens. And again, I want to I wanna equip um, as many people as I can, especially in this area, with the zero victim, vic zero victim uh, mindset. Ben Crump's a good friend of mine. and We work together in Kenosha, yeah, in oh, Kenosha, really? Wisconsin, yeah. with the Jacob Blake shooting, yeah. 
Yeah, we've done most of the really high-profile tragedies, and we've worked together for years. I've talked to him about that, and he said, please give that advice every every chance you get. And you're saying it much better than I, but it's so important. And if you don't have that victim mindset, then you just, that's you, this is me, you got a problem, I don't. Yeah. I'm just going to go on. You said something else that really jumped out at me. You said spiritual awakening seeks to forgive and cultural wokeness seeks to blame. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So there, there's where we are as a nation. I, I do believe that this is one of the advantages and maybe the um, just the timing of what's happening in society that I'm grateful to be a pastor. Um, I like to say that I'm called to speak um, at the intersection of uh, spirituality and intersectionality. Um, all of the challenges that we're experiencing in society that are growing is because of intersectionality. You got all these different qualities that are starting to intersect. And we all know, you know, for the listeners that may not understand intersectionality, it's a bad intersection. There's some intersection that traffic accidents happen because the visibility is bad and a number of different things. And so where spirituality meets inter intersectionality, as uh, Sharon and I believe that God has called us to be America's pastors, to stand at that point, to help us understand where spirituality meets intersectionality. There is a spiritual component. There's a faith component. I can really talk about, again, the, 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 the human heart, that when we deal with what's happening in society, whether it's a police officer or uh, any person, that, an abuser or a victimizer that commits some kind of injustice, it's a heart e issue. Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, evil comes from the human heart. It comes from within. We have to deal with the spiritual side of that. I like to say even from a social standpoint that um, spiritual law, every society is governed by three kinds of law, spiritual law, moral law, and civil law. Wherever you go, those three laws govern society. I like to say that spiritual law is the father, moral law is the mother, and they conceive to give birth to a child called civil law. We cannot fix the problems, the people problems in our society with civil laws. Civil law is not intended to make better people. I have a good friend who's a former police chief, and I would tell him, hey, if I do my job well, spiritually and morally, it'll make your job a whole lot easier. We got, we got to deal with people. And here's the issue. Civil law is incapable of making better people. You can't produce better people with civil law. It's not intended to do that. And so I think that this conversation about the role of spiritual law and moral law and shaping our society, I think, has been underserved. And I do think that that is where, as pastors, we can speak into that space and should speak in that space. Not that we're here to force everybody in America to become a Christian or to practice a certain religion. You know, that's wonderful. I, that's my prayer as a Christian and a pastor. I want to see everyone come to faith in Christ. But that's not the intent even of the Scriptures, to force people or to legislate that people practice a certain faith. But you cannot solve and deal with the wickedness and the evil that is obvious in our society in our society without dealing with faith and without dealing with spiritual and moral moral law. Um, I think we've got to reintroduce that conversation. And that is why I talk about the zero victim mindset from a faith perspective. I'll give you the bottom premise when I bottom line premise when I talk about zero victim mindset in the role of faith. Think about the life of Jesus Christ himself, the only innocent man that ever lived. 
suffered the greatest injustice that the world has ever known of being brutally crucified for someone else's sins. And while in the process of still being victimized, he's already praying and exercising the power of love and forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them. Get this, for they don't know what they're doing. And I, I like to remind us, doctor, that every injustice in society is a lesser infraction and a lesser injustice than that injustice. And so the power of love, forgiveness, the power of unity, we've not, we've not dealt on that side of the ledger in dealing with the problems that we're seeing in society, but we'll never get there if we don't start with a zero victim mindset. I like to say that zero victim thinking, it calls um, folks out of their end zone to the 50 yard line for us to begin once again to have those conversations about facts of victimization feelings of victimization and the philosophies of victimization. That kind of thinking that you're describing would go a long way to getting the divisiveness in this country to narrow, to bring people to a willingness to start talking to people that have a different position on some of these core issues right now, because right now we're seeing people that disagree with us as the enemy. Not just somebody that disagrees with us, but the enemy. And enemies are people that we see as attacking us, taking advantage of us, doing bad things to us. And there's no way you can do that unless you see yourself as being under attack. I think it's terrible that we've gotten to the point where we really do see anybody that disagrees with us as an enemy. And I know people say, oh, this is the worst it's ever been in America. They forget about the Civil War. <laughs> you know, it seemed <laughs> yeah. like things got a little bit worse then. I was around when we had the demonstrations against Vietnam, and I think we were as close to this country melting down then probably as we've ever been. So there have been other times, and we seem to have come out the other side of that, maybe better, at least okay. But I don't know that we've put on our victim hats and painted our counterparts as enemy as much as we do now. I think what you're saying is really important to say, let's, just, let's talk this through. Let's, let's really share. And it goes back to what we started talking about. We need stronger people where we don't have to feel so threatened every step of the way. And, and there's, a, there's a greater tragedy, Dr. Phil. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the Civil War. Um, there's another spiritual principle. When I talk about spiritual and moral law. Jesus says this, a house divided against itself, it won't stand. And at some point we have to recognize that the division in our nation will eventually become an irreversible problem, a greater problem that now we're talking about the, the, the essence of our nation now can, can implode. I'm talking about our nation can literally implode if we don't get a grip on the division that's taking place and zero victim thinking neutralizes that so that we can at least be civil and respectful and intelligent about our dis discourse to, res to respond by reason to these challenges. I have no doubt in my mind that we are sensible and intelligent enough to solve every problem we're dealing with in America. I, just, I don't believe that we're some kind of specimens in a, in, a, in a test lab to just react to whatever happens in life. God created us in his image to be very intelligent. I think we're, we're more than capable of solving the issues that we need to in life. But again, there's such an emotional, visceral reaction 
that's being monetized, weaponized, politicized? Who's who's gaining from the division in our society? That's another question that has to be asked. But I, I think there's no there's no question at all that we can address these issues if we can ever sit down from a zero victim perspective. You used to be able to have a debate and then walk off the Senate floor and go have lunch with your adversary and come back. And the comment I get now is, well, if it's all the same to you, I don't want to go have lunch with a baby killer. Well, okay, I understand, but let's find maybe a place to start. (laughs) We don't have to go there on the first sandwich. Let's, Let's find a place to at least treat each other with dignity and respect. Sure. And maybe we can find something that we can both live with. Here's why I think what you're talking about, particularly from a spiritual standpoint, and I know you're being careful to not hit that too hard. I don't think you're apologizing for it, but I think you don't want to exclude anyone. If somebody is not a Christian, which I am, and I don't apologize for either. But if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, don't let that turn you off because the lessons here are applicable whatever your belief system is. When I think about this, let me put my psychology hat on for a minute. And the it I'm talking about is Pastor James Ward's book, Zero Victim, Overcoming Injustice with a New Attitude. That sounds like a shameless plug. It is. It's the third or fourth one I've done because I'm a big believer in his mindset and his book. It is well-written. It's a page-turner. It's authentic. He's lived it. He does live it. It's not some theoretical treatise. It's very readable and understandable. But Looking at this from a psychological standpoint, if we look at violence, for example, you go into a neighborhood in Chicago, L.A., New York, or whatever, and they'll say, well, you know, they're violent neighborhoods. You can identify neighborhoods where the violence is located. But research tells us that within that neighborhood, there are locations within a neighborhood where most of the violence is centered. You can go into a few city blocks and you can find portions of blocks where there are micro locations and you can identify sometimes what you can count on both hands where the perpetrators for 80 or 90% of the violence are among bad actors you can count on both hands. It might be six, eight, 10 people in a micro-focused area within a neighborhood. That means if the right people, the police officers, the social workers, the parole officers, the probation officers can get this mentality and sit down with those young men, and they are men, and they are young, and they are identifiable. We know who they are. We know who's doing what they're doing. And get this across to them. 
that they do have a choice and that it's them that needs to take off the glasses that see the world in this way, significant changes can be made with a relatively small number of people in every community. That's correct. Because we know who they are, we know where they are, and you're talking about a mindset they need to embrace. And if they will, then the whole tenor of the neighborhood can change. I've seen it when we take them out and we incarcerate them, but they tend to come back or somebody tends to come up in their place. But if instead of doing that, you change their leadership, you change their influence, then you can change the tenor of the whole neighborhood. And and doctor, I'll add one more component to that, which I'm the greatest advocate for family. I, I take tremendous pride and esteem in being a father. So in that same scenario that you're communicating, and maybe this is a completely different show, we have to talk about the role of the family and the role of fathers in the home and fathers having a zero victim mindset to, to teach their children. It's really amazing that the Bible, even though women carry the baby and nurture the baby, the Bible, the Bible tells fathers to raise your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and don't exasperate them, don't provoke them to wrath. It was God intended for the fathers to be the educator and to define in the home. And so another missing conversation with victim thinking and the challenges that we're seeing in our in our society is we're not really addressing the role and the importance of, fa- of fathers and building strong families. Now, the second the second part of that, when we talk about, you know, just the 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 attitude, the overall attitude of victim victim thinking um, we travel, we get to travel the nation and, you know, even internationally quite a bit. I get to meet people from all over America, and I'm amazed at the common denominators of of decency, living a good life, a quality life that most people in America want the exact same thing. And when you talk about those micro pockets, those uh, you know those those small areas where you're seeing trouble come from those areas, I think the same thing is happening in our nation with the division that it's not widespread across the nation. The nation is not as divided as we're being, you know, taught and told that it really is. Most people, I think, have unified, unified around the common denominators, good old fashioned life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I, I, my, my one criticism of Thomas Thomas Jefferson, I said he got the order wrong. Instead of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, it should be liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and life. I think everything starts with being free. And once you are free, you are now free. You have the liberty for the pursuit of happiness. And as you pursue happiness in life, it creates a life for you. That's the power of zero victim thinking, that any person who is subject to victim thinking, you don't have a life. You're not free. You're not able to pursue your goals, your calling. You lose the dignity of of being who God created you to be, to give your best, to be your best, not only for yourself and your family, but for your community. Don't deprive the world of the greatness and the great potential that is inside you because you're living subject to victim thinking. I really want to see uh, a mass liberation take place and see this broken over our nation. I think it'll, it'll lead us to a place that we'll all benefit in, in ways that we've never, we've never imagined before. And that's where forgiveness comes in. Yes. You can't do it if you're angry. And I didn't have the greatest role model because my father was a really bad alcoholic and gone a lot. That's where 
faith in the Bible came in for me because that's where I learned about the role of the man in the family mm-hmm. to be a provider, a protector, a teacher, and a leader. Once you kind of have that written on the slate of your brain, then you kind of think, my job's well-defined. I can't unlearn that. So you have to step up into it wherever you were taught it. You couldn't be more right about the fathers. And in many of these situations, they're sadly incarcerated. So, yeah, yeah. So, so think about it. To your point, many of the young men, let's go back to just this kind of cycle of saying, you know, young black men with these encounters with white police officers. In many situations, those young men, their first encounter with any kind of authority figure is with that police officer. And it was never intended to be that way. And you didn't grow up with an encounter with an authority figure in the home. The dad is God's police officer. Your first police officer and the first disciplinarian is the father in the home. Well, if you have kids that are growing up that, that have not had a father in the home and you put them you know, in confrontation with the ultimate authority, that's that's never going to turn out turn out well. Yeah, and they've been programmed before they ever get there. Well, Pastor, I've kept you way longer than we bargained for, and I could talk oh, to you forever. Pleasure. Pastor James Ward's book is Zero Victim. You've heard me talk about it time and again as we've been going through this. I highly recommend it. It's overcoming injustice with a new attitude and The important thing is that puts the onus on you because you can choose your attitude. You can choose what you say. You can choose what you do in every situation. And he advocates strongly that you create the space to really give yourself an opportunity to respond instead of just react. Let me tell you, there's a lot of verbs in these sentences in here. This is not theory. It's about action, and I highly recommend it. We're going to be dealing with a lot of what you talk about here throughout the rest of this season and year, and I hope we can get you back with us again to talk to some of these people that will benefit from this and intervene with some of these stories. I know how busy you are. I know how much you travel, but it would really be great to get you back in here again to get you on the stage again. It'd be my honor and my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Sharon, thank you for sitting through this. 